know, as we talk about quite frequently, we are an interdenominational church, which means that there are people from lots of denominational backgrounds. If there is one topic that every church and denomination have somewhat fierce convictions around, it would be the topic of baptism. And I've learned that more throughout the years as we've grown and, and, and had various questions. And so um, what I wanted to do this morning is I want to uh, do a presentation and just show you where in Scripture we get our convictions for the place and role of baptism. And in particular, something, the part of it that's very meaningful to me is the baptismal confession of faith that we ask of all of our participants. And I want you all to be aware of that. And at the end of the service, we will close by standing and having a reaffirmation of all of our baptismal confession of faith, the, the same affirmations or the same confession that all of our candidate, candidates are going to make uh, next week. And so uh, well, we'll do things a little different. We'll do those baptisms at 11 instead of at um, 10. And so uh, hopefully there'll be more of us here to really celebrate and welcome these new members. And, and they are, it, it, is, it is a multi-generational baptism uh, next week. We're really looking forward to it. So let's just begin with how we would answer the question. And again, I want to emphasize this is not to suggest that we have a better idea than any other church. It's just that we are a community and it's fair to ask, what are our convictions? And so we are sharing where we're coming from. And if, if something comes up that, that, that is challenging to you that you need to work through and you would like to discuss that further, by all means, call up to the church and Ruby will set us something up and we will get together and have free coffee and we will talk about it. Uh, you don't have to believe everything that I believe, but what I wanted to do this morning is to show you where we are informed by Scripture. There are many different traditions, but we want to ground our convictions in Scripture. So if you look at your notes this morning, the notes are primarily filled up with Scripture references. It's a little different kind of a sermon, but I wanted you, I want us to read those together, and I want you to have access to those, because as we often say, even if uh, you might read those Scriptures differently in the way I'm presenting them, you still need to be able to articulate what your conviction is about what the Scripture is communicating. And so we're going to take a moment to do that. So we are going to begin with... What is baptism? We're just going to answer that question. What is baptism and what, are, what is our baptism confession of faith? Well, baptism is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. It is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. Or another way of saying it is that it is a metaphorical reenactment of a spiritual mystery. It is a metaphorical reenactment of a spiritual mystery. And this is why in our community that we do baptism through immersion. Because we are convinced that, among other reasons, but one of the primary reasons is that immersion most clearly articulates the, the spiritual mystery that we are commemorating. So... Um, Again, we're going to go to the book of Romans, and I'm not going to unpackage these 14 verses. I'm going to be committed to my time. I'm not going to go off on rants and tangents. But I do want us to read all 14 of these verses together because um, there's so much packed in this idea 
And this is really what is being symbolized in the act of immersion as though it is an act of dying and being buried and then being brought up as an act of resurrection into new life. And we've talked recently about how that is kind of our constant metaphor for spiritual growth, death and resurrection. So Romans 6 verses 1 through 14, if you don't have the notes, you might want to Grab some real quick or have someone get some for you because there were too many passages to put all up on the overhead this morning. So, But all of them are in your notes. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's an important question. That's a good place to mark in your notes because oftentimes we don't fully communicate and therefore comprehend the reality that being born again, being renewed, being saved by Jesus, being filled with the Spirit means that we really have died to sin. I am not saying that we are perfect people who never sin, but what Our conviction is, and as you read through this passage in Romans 6, is that our conviction is the message of the gospel isn't change who you are, it's be who you are. And and a lot of our struggle comes down to the way we identify ourselves with our sin in in a way that isn't well informed by the hopeful message of the gospel which says that the Spirit actually has set us free. We are actually people of righteousness who struggle in sin. We are not sinners who struggle to be righteous. And getting that order correct is pivotal to how you develop your own spiritual um, formation. So, uh, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3. Or are you unaware... That all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death. That's the picture that's seen in the going down into the waters. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, so we too may walk in newness of life. Newness of life, verse five. For it certainly all, for if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no, no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Now, again, uh, we could spend two weeks probably unpackaging all the nuances of this paragraph of this section of scripture, but I wanted to read it uh, publicly and for all of us to walk through it because essentially this is why we do baptism the way we're doing it. Baptism is a picture of this spiritual reality that Paul is writing about here. And so it is more than just a declaration of what one believes. It is a demonstration of how one understands their life to be moving forward. It is rooted in how they understand their identity as a renewed follower of Jesus. So, what is baptism? Answer number one is baptism is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality, a metaphorical reenactment of a spiritual mystery that Paul talks about right here. Secondly, baptism is a public declaration of faith and a conscious initiation into the community of Christ. Through baptism, we declare our belief and our chosen way of life. So one way that you might think about it is uh, I often grew up in, um, in circles to where we would talk about our spiritual birthday. You may have done that. You may have it etched in your Bible. Any good old school people that still has it scribbled in their Bible somewhere? Not too many among us. Well, I have. I have a Bible that's in it so I can celebrate my spiritual birthday. Um, but um, one of the things that we've tried to address and challenge is this overly simplistic and high-pressured idea that you're a sinner, you're going to go to hell. The way you keep from that, if you bow your head with me right now and say a sinner's prayer. And so I I am not suggesting that those uh, conversions are false. I am not suggesting that they're uh, not legitimate. That's how I came into the faith. And I would still, if someone came to me and said, I want to start to follow Jesus, I would say, let me pray with you. And I would lead them through some sort of version of the sinner's prayer. I think that's a great way of, of, of publicly and, and prayerfully declaring your intent to follow Jesus. And um, But I also see that there is a problem when that uh, those invitations are done with any kind of pressure or emotional manipulation because not because they're wrong, but because it sets the follower up to have doubts later on about what really happened or what really took place. Because um, in contrast to the history of the church, we make that move very quickly. The history of the church spent more time informing people, educating people, and helping them to understand exactly what that meant. Because it means more than now you can be guaranteed that you'll go to heaven after you die. It is an invitation to be a follower of Jesus, and now you will be in this world as he was in this world. That there is a distinction. We certainly believe God loves everyone. But we don't believe that everyone is following God from their heart. 
And we're not judging them for that, but we are acknowledging that we are being called to a separateness, a different way of living that is modeled off of the person, work, and vision of Jesus. And so when we... um, So part of what we're doing is we're initiating that chosen way of life. The other benefit of that is this. It is helpful for people to remember the day of their initiation. I'm not saying that that's the day that they were saved, but it is, it is helpful for people to remember this is the day that I made a decision of the direction I was going to go with my life. And then I was uh, understanding that this meant that here forward, my ego is not in charge. Jesus Christ, through the indwelling spirit, is in charge. And so it is a declaration of not just a way of believing, but a way of life which then leads us to our three questions of our baptismal confession. That's the background. That's why we articulate these questions the way we do. We're doing our, making our best attempt for the baptismal moment to be an informed understanding that my life is different because I'm following Jesus. So the first question that we ask all of our candidates, and we talked with these questions with them in private, that's what, I, that's what many of us have been doing for the past three weeks. And I've had some beautiful meetings with people as we get to hear their stories in a way that we don't always get to be aware. So the first question is going to be, do you trust Jesus as your Savior to forgive your sin and to lead you by His Spirit? To forgive your sin and to lead you by His Spirit. Here are some of the passages that inform that question. Number one is 1 John 1, 5 through 9. Um, This is the message that we heard from Jesus. And now declare to you, God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. So we're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. but But if we are living in the light... As God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Again, We are not saying that Christians are automatically perfect and they do not sin. We are are recognizing we are not defined by that sin. We are defined by the gracious forgiveness of the Father. And so even though we don't do this perfectly, we stumble. And sometimes we go in reverse. We understand that we are held in the hands of a loving, forgiving Father Who's, and the blood of his son has cleansed us from all of our sin. Now, that's kind of the main one. That's kind of what everybody kind of goes into this whole process uh, understanding. We're looking for forgiveness of sins because we've done a good job of articulating that reality of the gospel message. But it is more than that. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 27 and 28 says, 
For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. So then we bring this other imagery. Now we've got this metaphor of death and resurrection, but now we have this new imagery that we've actually been clothed with Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the first statement of who you are as a human being. So we've been clothed with Christ, but that's not all. Look at Galatians 5, 22 and 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So this is why we, we, are, we are shifting to our, not shifting, but we are, we are doing, we're trying to do a more faithful job in emphasizing the role of baptism in the life of the follower of Jesus, in part as a way of extending and being faithful to our call to disciple believers. And one of the things that we want people to understand, this is not just, it, it is so much more than your sins are forgiven, is that God puts his life in you. And now you live in a whole entirely different existence because you are called to keep in step with the Spirit. What we do as followers of Jesus, the reason why we're empowered to be in this world as he was in this world is that we go through a growth process that allows us to learn to discern the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it takes time, it takes maturity, it takes some trial and error. However, over time, we are understanding that we are to cultivate this reality, that what it means to follow Jesus is to know what it means to live by the impulse of the Spirit in the present moment. So therefore, we articulate that question that way. Do you trust Jesus as Savior, which means he forgives your sin, but he also leads you by the Holy Spirit. That aspect of it is just as pivotal and important as the first. So that is our first question that we'll ask at the confession. The second one is this. Will you follow his teachings with your life and obey him from your heart? Will you follow his teachings with your life and obey him from your heart? The real transformation takes place when we start to understand not just who Jesus was, but what he taught and we take seriously the command to follow him. And one of the ways that we follow him in a way that's different than the original disciples, because they physically had Jesus with them. But one of the things that we understand it means to follow him is we take his teaching seriously. We say that our vision is to renew the understanding of Christianity in our generation. And one of the things that we want to renew is that Christians aren't just people who believe things about Jesus. Christians are people who align their lives with the wisdom and the teachings of Jesus. Knowing the red letters are important to us here at Christ Community Church. We recognize that the way we begin to understand the formation of our lives and how we make decisions and how we discern the way that God has gifted us to minister to the world is we become students of Jesus. 
Another word for disciple that I really like better because disciple, uh, depending on your background, might carry a lot of unnecessary baggage connected to it. But another way of saying it is that we are an apprentice. To follow Jesus means you are an apprentice to Jesus in the school of life. And as we follow Jesus and we allow his way to transform our ways, that is, that is how we are going to be empowered to bring renewal to the world. So will you follow his teachings with your life and obey him from your heart? Again, what we're emphasizing is it is a calling more than just believing things about Jesus. It is an invitation to participate in his way of life. So some of the things, some of the scriptures I would like for us to contemplate this morning are are two in particular, both from the book of Matthew. Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, acts on them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded the house. Yet it did not, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears this word is of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. So Jesus creates this contrast here between these two men who build houses as a metaphor for the difference in both men hear the words of Jesus, understand the words of Jesus, maybe even say we believe the words of Jesus. But there is one thing that makes them different. One acts upon those words while the other doesn't. And and what we are trying to do is show the corrective that Jesus showed us how to live. He wasn't born just to be a sacrifice for sin. He was born and walked the earth as the ultimate pinnacle revelation of the exact nature of God. And so it's not just, there, there sometimes is this sense that the most, all that's really important about Jesus is that he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And, and that, is, that is a mistake. Now, what's important about Jesus isn't just what he did, but also what he taught. Because if one's heart is just captivated by religion and not by the living Christ, those two experiences will be very, very different indeed. And the truth is, if I go to church and I believe the right doctrines, but I consistently live anti-Christ in the way I treat my wife, in the way I treat my children, in the way I posture myself in my uh, job responsibilities or in my community, there will be no power in my life. I can't say the right things, but then make antichrist choices and accept and expect the fruit of the spirit to blossom in my life. This is a call to give your life over to becoming a lifelong apprentice to Jesus. And part of that means we listen to his words and we act on now, if, you, if, if what I just said makes sense to you and you would like to know where to start, I'm glad you asked. One of the great places to start is to immerse yourself in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
In fact, how can we do this? Oh, I have an idea. You set aside 100 days. And for 100 days, you commit to reading through the Sermon on the Mount. Either three chapters a day for 100 days or just rotate through it one chapter a day for 100, uh, through for 100 days. Because you will immerse yourself in the most detailed manifestation, manifesto of the kingdom of God that we have recorded by the words of Jesus. Why do I do that? We do that so, so that it's not just about having quiet time and making sure that I've done my religious obligation of reading my Bible. It's about immersing ourselves in the mind of Christ and really catching a vision for the kind of world uh, that can emerge by people who live as citizens of, of Jesus' kingdom of God. So, so it, it is critical, if we want to see transformation, that we learn to act upon the things we're learning. But here's another one that I think is really interesting that we just don't often talk about. It's in Matthew 28, verses th- uh, 28 through 32. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, My son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I don't want to. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered. But he didn't go. Said the right things, behaved the right way. When, when the father asked him, then in the end, he doesn't follow through and go. Verse 31. Which of the two did his father's well will? They said the first. Now sit with that for just a moment. There are two sons. One says the wrong thing. One embodies the wrong posture. Arrogance, telling the father no. And yet there is something that works in his heart, and he reconsiders his rebellion and obstinance and decides, regardless of what I said, I'm called to obey, and he goes and works in the vineyard. You contrast that then with the son who knew exactly what to say, had the right words, articulated them at the important moment. But when it came time to obey and work the vineyard, he didn't go. He didn't follow through. Do you see how this kind of echoes the previous story in Matthew uh, um, seven or wherever it was we just were uh, matthew twenty one about the um, about the two houses pardon oh what seven okay you 're right yeah it was starting one at seven and then twenty one so now look at how Jesus wraps up this parable. Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even, here's our word for repent, remember, didn't even change your minds and believe him. That's a powerful parable to let that sink in. Because in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of religion doesn't always value the same things. 
I've got just a few minutes. We're not going to go off on too much of a rant, but we all have the internet. We all read the stories. When are we collectively going to say that the system we have erected is not working? It is harming people. It is harming the people who lead it, and it is harming the people that are being led. Because we correct a system, we we erected a system in religion that if you say the right things, if you have the right charismatic personality, if you can tick off and say, I believe this and that, and I've got the right doctrine, then we will promote you. And somewhere in that time, we see story after story over almost weekly where I believe a sincere man or woman at one point was young and they bowed their knee and they said, Lord, I give you my life. I just want to serve you. And somewhere that whole mechanism of religion began to boost their ego and they learned to say the right things and behave the right things, but their heart drifted further and further away from the Lord And then we find out now there's scandal. Now we all hate them. We want to drive them out of town. We want to, we want to, we want to cancel the institutions they led because we created the systems where you can be promoted by saying the right things, even if you don't have the right heart. It should be a cautionary tale for us all. So Jesus says, the application of my parable is the people that don't have it all together religiously, these are the ones that are entering the kingdom of God. And your expertise in religion is actually becoming the thing that creates the obstacle of you humbling yourself, changing your mind, and entering the kingdom of God. So we see it's really, really important that we respond positively by embodying and walking in obedience to the teachings of Jesus. So... That's question um, Question number one. Do you trust Jesus as your Savior to forgive your sin and to lead you by his Spirit? And the candidate will answer yes. The question number two is will you follow his teachings with your life and obey him from your heart? Yes. And then that brings us to question number three. Will you live a life of service to others as an expression of your love for Jesus? Will you live a life of service to others as an expression of your love for Jesus. For me this week, this was the most interesting question to go over with people. And my heart was so encouraged uh, to hear how quickly, especially the younger ones, immediately had this concept that to follow Jesus means to love and serve other people. And I'll be honest with you, when I was in youth, I was mainly concerned with making sure that I didn't go to hell, and I wasn't the only one in my family that lived in hell. That was one of the pressure points. It was like, do you want to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, or do you want to live eternity away from your mom and daddy who have already accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? On one level, that's kind of comical. It's kind of funny. On another level, it is toxic and demonic and heavily manipulative. And it saddles young children with really unhelpful ideas about God and how salvation works. It's also a recognition that the call to serve Jesus 
is not just about the afterlife. It's about this life. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And God has endowed you with a temperament and experiences and gifts that will empower you to minister in his name if you will recognize the call to do so. And so we felt it was necessary that if you're going to be baptized into Christ, it means your life doesn't just belong to Jesus, it belongs to the people he's sending you to. Your life also belongs to the people that you are called to serve. Now, I am not trying to emphasize this as some kind of moralistic demand to get more volunteers. Even though I think we just advertise for volunteers. So what I'm basically saying is if you really want to follow Jesus, you'll sign up for the tech team uh, that we advertised earlier. No, no, but that could be part of it. That could be some of it. But more of what I'm saying is this. And we're going to see it in the scriptures. What you will find is your most tangible experiences with Jesus will not be in church services. It'll be when you heed the call to serve Jesus in his distressing disguise. Because then you're not just singing about Jesus. You might be actually washing the feet of your Lord. So there's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, and we're going to end with this. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for, the, for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Let's read that last line together. You did for And what's amazing is that these, for these followers of Jesus, it was just so much an ingrained part of their life. They didn't even think about it. It wasn't like, I'm going to serve so I can get more points with the Lord. It just flowed out of them, and I would suggest, because they are models of what it looks like to learn how to keep in step with the Spirit and respond with obedience to whatever God's calling you to put your hand to. Then he has the negative side of the parable. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me, sick and in prison and you didn't take care of me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these, you did not do for me.
And it is helpful for the disciple to examine and evaluate their life and to ask themselves, Jesus, was I present to you today? Or Jesus, did I neglect you today? And we ask those questions so that we can learn and grow. You may spend a lot of time recognizing where you neglected Jesus, but that's the key to your transformation in the future. As long as you recognize this vision is not just to become a cherubim and pluck a harp one day. It is about actively being the body of Christ and recognizing in every generation God is at work to restore all broken things and he does it through the words, actions, and the presence of his people who are the body of Christ on earth. And to be baptized is to say, I understand I accept, I want to be part of the body of Christ on earth. That's what we will celebrate from these individuals next week. So, as they will be asked in front of you, let us all now stand and let's renew our own baptism confession of faith. As I told all the candidates that I met with, if you get nervous in front of crowds and your mind goes blank, Unlike school, I'm giving you the answer to the test before you get into the tank. The answers are yes, yes, and yes. From the heart. Do you trust Jesus as your Savior to forgive your sin and to lead you by His Spirit? If so, please say yes. Will you follow his teachings with your life and obey him from your heart? If so, please respond, yes. Will you live a life of service to others as an expression of your love for Jesus? If so, please respond, yes. We're going to get ready to take communion now. And maybe you want to take the moment to look over those three questions. And take a personal moment for the Lord. It doesn't mean you've done anything wrong, but maybe it's a good moment to stop, reflect, and just reaffirm the substance of your faith. Let these questions live in your heart and begin to ask the Lord what it means. Particularly the third one. If you're not sure who God's called you to give yourself to yet, then create some space and ask him.